as many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash UNTCares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT Alumni Spotlight Series, presented by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UNT and the UNT Alumni Association. The Alumni Association is open to all friends of UNT who are interested in serving, supporting, and celebrating the university. To learn more, visit untalumni.com. To learn more about Ollie at UNT, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie, in partnership with the UNT Alumni Association. The Ollie at UNT podcast presents the Alumni Spotlight series, featuring exceptional alumni. This month's spotlight falls on Wendy Zomner, the co-founder and creative force behind Urban Decay. Named as a consistent favorite with beauty editors, consumers, and makeup artists, Urban Decay is one of the most influential makeup brands online with over 11 million followers on Instagram. Wendy attended St. John's International School in Waterloo, Belgium, and is a 1989 graduate of UNT, earning a BA in journalism and is ambassador for 2021's 75th anniversary celebration for UNT's Mayborn School of Journalism. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so very much for joining us. Now, going to high school in Belgium must have been a unique experience, and I'm guessing that it added to your individuality, both personally and as a businesswoman. Am I right? Oh, you are exactly right. I think being able to spend some time in another country and being able to see all the the different countries in Europe gave me a very different perspective than just my Texas perspective, which is a great perspective, but being able to experience the world in a different place was really eye-opening for me. And I think it informed a lot of my choices and decisions and worldview. Well, you've had a lot of different experiences. I know you worked as a model and at Leo Burnett, a very large advertising agency in Chicago. What do you credit as preparing you most for being the driving creative force behind the creation of Urban Decay? Well, those are obviously two very different experiences. As a model, I was definitely like sort of a B-grade model, but it was interesting because I wasn't doing super high-end photo shoots. There wasn't always a makeup artist there. So it was really interesting for me to sit and learn from other models and from makeup artists who would happen to be on set, how to touch up my own makeup, how to do my makeup for photography. 
it wasn't my first introduction to makeup because I had always loved makeup growing up in Texas, but it was really the first time I had to do something with it professionally. And then moving into my agency career, you know, I was in account management and you have to be so buttoned up, pulled together. You have to know how to present your idea, your plan, your vision. And so I think both of those experiences, even though they're incredibly different, both prepared me for what I ended up doing with Urban Decay. I love the way people find that all the different jobs that they've had as they're growing up into life and getting started in the business arena just adds different things to whatever it is that they end up doing and developing. It's really wonderful. Yeah, it's really interesting how all of it ends up coming together, all of your experiences. It really is. And you really had a hands-on there as a model doing your own makeup for photography. Yeah, it was it was definitely stressful at times, you know, like, oh, my gosh, am I going to do it right? But I do remember there was this older model named Marlies, and she would take us under her wing and she showed us what to do and how to make it look good and where to put the highlights. And I remember her kind of doing a little class for all of these young models that had come in into the agency. And that was my first experience with mentorship. So, you know, where you least expect to find it sometimes you find it. That's the truth. Did you find that your work in advertising gave you an important edge in being able to figure out what people wanted in a certain industry and and figuring out what was on the forefront of something? Well, I think my work in advertising taught me how to listen to the cues that the market's giving. I think now we're so digitally driven, you can get so granular on the audience you want to talk to and how to reach them and whether it's being effective. But I think there's also something to be said for just feeling what's going on in the world, listening to people, putting your feelers out. And I think in combining that with all of the sort of data-driven tools we have really helps give you a feel for what's happening in the marketplace. And I think being in an agency and being exposed to how you do research to find out what the trends are going to be, I think it helps, you know, just to have that experience and to see people who do this for a living predict what's going to happen or research people's reaction to a product. I think you innately start to learn a lot about what needs to be on the forefront. Well, you certainly had insight into the makeup industry. What was missing in the makeup industry before Urban Decay came on the scene? Well, it was a very different makeup world than people know today. I I like to say you've got to go back into a time warp where there was no Sephora, no Ulta. The main place you bought what we call prestige makeup, which is differentiated from what we call mass, which you find in the drugstore and Target. Prestige makeup was mostly at department stores, and that's where people shopped for more high-end makeup. And I always say the hallmark of prestige beauty is the tester, the live tester where you can touch and play and feel versus a mass market experience where you're just, it's less expensive and you're kind of taking a risk. But I really think that was missing in the makeup industry was in this, in this prestige arena, it was really this kind of sea of pink and beige and red. It wasn't very interesting. It was pretty safe. It wasn't the Technicolor rainbow dream that you see today when you walk into Sephora. And we really saw that white space and said, why isn't there high quality, high pigmented, amazing makeup 
in different colors. Why does everything have to be so over the top, girly, sugary, sweet? Why can't it have a little bit more of an edgy, badass feel that feels like women or men could use it? And you, you got to imagine like back in 1995, when we were talking about this, like the thought of makeup that both men and women wore was like, it, that was like on the moon, right? That was crazy town. Um, <laughs> even though today it's very common, many beauty influencers are actually men. So I think we had a lot of vision into what was going to happen in the future and that makeup was going to become less about aspiration and aspiring to someone else's cookie cutter ideal of what beauty should be. And it was going to turn more into a world where it was about self-expression and about feeling good in your own skin and about feeling beautiful, no matter what your attributes are, you could feel beautiful because you are, you know, that inside out beauty and help, having makeup help you bring that out. So I know that's a really long answer, but there was a lot missing in the makeup industry. There was a lot of empathy towards diversity. There was a lot of, it was missing this whole idea of both men and women could use it. It was missing this idea of like bright and brilliant color it was missing the idea of it doesn't have to be sugary, sweet, feminine. So it was missing a lot of things. And we stepped in and overtook that white space. You opened up a world in makeup industry that went along with what was happening in society. That's amazing. You just opened that up and said, hey, you know, we're not all these cookie cutters, little aprons tied like the 1950s advertising is what comes in mind to me, you know, with the woman in the kitchen happily making dinner. No, 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 we're not that way. We're, we're all different. And there's men, there's women, there's different men, there's different women. And uh, I love your company's tagline, beauty with an edge. That's so cool. Can yeah, you talk you. about that? Yeah, I mean, what we were trying to do was was say that beauty doesn't have to be what anyone else thinks it should be, right? It's It can be edgy. It can be different. You can make a statement with it. You can show the world who you are through makeup. It's not about hiding. It's not about covering up. It's not about covering your flaws. It's about showing the world who you are. And that's really what Beauty with an Edge was about because it's about taking risks and maybe doing something kooky with your makeup one day, or even not that kooky, it just feels like a risk for you. And so live on the edge a little bit with beauty. I mean, it's, I always say it's makeup. At the end of the day, you just wash it off. It's not a permanent decision. It should be fun. And it shouldn't make you feel less than it should make you feel empowered. And I think, you know, you go back to the 1950s with the aprons, but I really go back to like, the 80s and 90s with these perfect, polished, beautiful women, they were usually hyper feminine, like hyper small, even features. They were usually pale skinned. They were usually always women. They were always skinny and they were usually always white. And this was this aspirational beauty idea that most people couldn't ever attain, even if they wanted to, that I didn't think they should want to attain that. So we were really about the democratization of beauty, and that's what Beauty with an Edge is all about. I love that. Congratulations. Now, when you co-founded Urban Decay in the mid-90s with Sandy Lerner, what led you to working with Sandy, and what led you to develop this product? So I tell everyone, Urban Decay was Sandy's idea, and I, had, I met her, and she had this thought in her head, I want to start a makeup company. We knew we wanted it to be edgy and different. And I met her through one of my 
really good friends from Chicago who lives out here in the West Coast now. And so I guess still get to see her all the time. And she introduced me to her former fiance, who was Sandy Lerner's business manager. And he had said to to my friend, Sandy's kicking around this idea of a makeup company. And she's like, well, she should call my friend Wendy. So that's really how it happened. I always think if she hadn't said that, if he hadn't mentioned this to her, this could have never ended up happening. And I think that's really interesting for people to think about, like, what are those tiny moments in your life that were pivotal, right? Where were those pivotal moments? And this was definitely one of them. It's incredible the way things fall into place. Just little pieces come together. I have to tell you, and you can probably tell, you have a bit of a fan club here in me. Oh, (laughs) thanks. I was so impressed reading about you and your drive in the early days of forming your company. You were cold calling magazine editors and making press kits from materials out of hardware stores and walking through New York City, visiting different offices. I mean, that takes such not only a great deal of creativity and planning, but confidence as well. I'd love to hear more about that aspect of your background as an emerging force in the industry. Well, I think a lot of what I learned to be able to do that were a couple of things. And a lot of it I did learn right at UNT. Those qualities are just being willing to put yourself out there and ask, make the ask, and also trying to be resourceful. And I had to do both of those things in many of the classes I took in the journalism department at UNT. You know, what comes to mind is my ad sales class with Ernestine Farr. You got to sign clients and you had to go cold call and knock on doors and sell ad space. And you really had to put yourself out there. And it was scary and intimidating at first. And then it got easier. That was really great because you had to learn to make the pitch in the moment. The other class that taught me to be really resourceful was I took Roy Busby's PR class. And it was all about coming up with ideas for PR and press kits. And I really think a lot of those skills led me to go, you know what, I don't have a lot of money to do this press kit, I need it to make a bang when it lands on someone's desk. And I'm just gonna hit the hardware store We're beauty with an edge, like, let's make it look edgy. So those are really some of the skills I developed were right at the University of North Texas. Well, I hope some of the students are listening to this because they will know that those things that they're learning every day in class are those skills that you used when you got out there on the streets of New York and put all that together. As I mentioned in the introduction, next year, the Mayborn School of Journalism will be celebrating its 75th anniversary, and that's quite a milestone, with thousands of graduates spread over all possible forms of journalism and communications. The Mayborn School has established itself among the top tier of academic journalism programs in the United States. And you, Wendy, have been selected as an ambassador for the celebration. What does that entail? Well, I'm super honored to be the ambassador for the 75th celebration. It's really amazing. And it really entails talking about the celebration, bringing people together in any way we can, because we don't know what that's going to look like. So it's been a really interesting journey so far, because 
it's hard to make concrete plans going forward with the world we're living in right now. But it's really just taking a lot of opportunities to promote the department and reach out and talk about different opportunities. I know there's scholarships and there's all kinds of really cool things happening with the 75th anniversary. Yeah, it sounds exciting. I read that UNT is matching donations to the Transfer and Freshman Scholarship Fund, which is a great way to finance students to go through this great program. And I know they've been working on a lot of different events. It should be a terrific celebration. It should be amazing. You had an interesting story about one of your profs in the journalism class at UNT that made a difference in your life. What's that story? Well, I think I touched on it where we had to go uh, sell ad space, but I do remember taking that ad sales class and walking in there and it was a, it was a lecture class. There were a lot of people in there and I remember Miss Farr saying, "No one gets an A in this class." And I was like, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to get an A. Like that's it. I'm just going to get an A." It made a big impact on me because I learned so many things in that class. One, the motivation to overcome a huge challenge, right? No one gets an A. And two, it was that selling skill to put yourself out there every single day and pitch to different clients. Three, it I learned a lot about design and ad layouts and what worked and what didn't. We had to make our own ads. We were our own graphic designers and you had to present them to your clients. And that's a different kind of sales job than asking for the order. It was a multifaceted class that just taught me kind of top to bottom how to successfully function in any kind of working organization, how to add value from the day you walked in the door, which is why I think I went to Leo Burnett as an intern, a summer intern, and they asked me to stay. They were like, can you just stay and we'll offer you a job? And they had never offered, you know, they had their classes that they recruited from at the Harvards and University of Illinois and all of their standard schools that they recruited their starting class from or their entry level class, but never one from the University of North Texas. And, and I like to think that that was because I was prepared to contribute from the moment I walked in the door. And those kinds of skills you mentioned are just skills that work in so many different fields and so many different areas. They're just things that you pick up in school and then you're able to do in so many variety of different areas in life. Yeah. And I think the journalism department is so good about having cutting edge technology available to the students to learn. And this isn't what I'm about to tell you isn't cutting edge technology at all. You guys will probably laugh. But one of the ways I added value right from the beginning was I had been trained on what was an Apple computer, which is, was a Macintosh back in the day. And I went into this agency and they had an emergency need for a very pulled together presentation. And all of their sort of presentation making people, they literally drew these presentations out by hand, like the bullet points. You can't even imagine how old school this was. I've got to take everyone back to 1989, right? And, you know, I was able to find a Mac on one of the floors in the agency, most of them were not. And I was able to put together this presentation and print it out on large paper and give this top level executive the presentation he needed to have in under 24 hours. And that was all skills I learned at Mayborn. As you've developed Urban Decay, what's had the biggest impact on you in developing that? Have you learned some valuable lessons along the way? 
Well, I think that one of the biggest lessons I've learned is you only have a certain amount of bandwidth and you really have to, as someone who's leading a company or a project or an organization, you really have to know how much bandwidth you have. You have to delegate to other people. And your job is really to clearly communicate your vision and where everyone needs to go so that all of those people around you can do their job to help fulfill that vision. So you have to be clear in the vision and you have to be willing to empower people. So I really have learned about not micromanaging things. And I think I've also learned about balance and finding balance in everything. And I don't just mean work-life balance, but yeah, it's, it's everything you touch. If it's something's out of balance, it's eventually not going to work. So you really have to, it's all about like continually jugging, keeping all the balls in the air and finding that balance. I understand that L'Oreal purchased Urban Decay in 2012. Has that made a difference in your role with the company? Yeah, it's made a big difference because we were focused on the U.S. business. We were one of the top brands in the U.S. We had a great business in the U.K. and a couple of other countries, but we didn't really have a significant international business. And it was one of our biggest reasons for wanting to sell to a strategic was to have a more global presence. And now I think we're in over almost 70 countries or 65 countries, something crazy. So my role has changed a lot from being very hands-on with all of those day-to-day details to having to, to take a step back and have more of this founder role where I am providing people with that vision that I talked about earlier so that they're empowered to do their jobs and take the brand to another level. Did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams when you started forming Urban Decay, that it would be at this level? No, I thought that this would be a fun project I'd be doing for a couple of years. Maybe someone would buy it and, you know, I'd move on to the next thing. I didn't have any idea it would continue to grow. What I think one of the coolest things about it is, is that we've provided great economic opportunity for so many people. You know, we've created jobs and they're not just any jobs. They're really creative jobs that people find fulfilling. And they're well-paid and they're able to pursue goals and dreams through their work at Urban Decay. And I also think what's cool is that we created a culture where people, when they join it, they join the UD fam. They really feel like they're on a mission to do something good and something great. Like they really feel like they are contributing to empowering people around the world through makeup. That's terrific. 65 countries. I just am imagining being you for a minute and thinking about walking into some store in some country far, far away and seeing my brand there. It must be an incredible feeling. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. The The funniest thing was I was on a surf trip with my family and I think we landed in Dubai transitioning to you know the Indian Ocean somewhere where we were going surfing. I'm pretty tired. I don't have any makeup on. I'm looking pretty beat up after this long flight from LA to Dubai. And someone says, Wendy. And I look up and there's an Urban Decay counter and one of the beauty advisors who I'd never met before, but who knew me from the photos and all the PR stuff, saw me in the airport in Dubai. And I had this wonderful conversation with her and got to know her. But it was crazy because I never even thought, I knew we were there, but I didn't really think that that was real right? It just was super surreal for me 
that I almost walked by it and didn't even see it until she said my name. That's great. Now, we've sort of touched on this, but you described Urban Decay as the bridge between the old world and the new world of beauty. What makes Urban Decay such a standout in the beauty industry still to this day? I think one of the things that makes us a standout is that we really believe in empowering people and it's not, it's not something we just say. We really believe that all the products we make are about that. And I think we're the first brand to focus on cruelty-free. We were the first brand to do no animal hair brushes. We've never made a brush out of animal hair. And I think all of those things still matter to people. So I think we're the first brand to really stack up a lot of these sort of new world values and talk to people about them. Wendy, you did some amazing things in empowering women throughout the world with the Ultraviolet Edge. Can you talk about that? I loved creating the Ultraviolet Edge and developing a way to empower women through makeup. And it's not really through makeup, it's through proceeds of selling makeup products. And we worked, one organization in particular was the Women's Global Empowerment Fund. It's a great organization. It's based in Gulu, Uganda. What was cool was we were able to make a real difference in women's lives, providing literacy programs, providing funding for microloans that helped women empower themselves. A lot of these women went from feeding their kids one meal a day to actually being able to feed their kids three meals a day through the microloan program. One of the most cool things was we helped fund the Healthy Period Initiative. I love this program. We helped the Women's Global Empowerment Fund buy a machine that allowed a bunch of young mothers in the area to come together. They worked with paper pulp, and this basic machine to create sanitary supplies for women, because in that part of the world, having pads for your period, it, it's really incredibly expensive. So most women couldn't afford it. That meant they had to stay home from school or from work, which put them at big disadvantages economically. So this Healthy Period Initiative really created a product that was affordable, that was locally made, that was completely sustainable and allowed women to stay at work. So I was really proud of, of getting that initiative off the ground. Well, you should be. Congratulations on that. Thanks. And congratulations on receiving Women's Wear Daily's Impact Award for creating a big impact in changing and making a difference in the beauty industry. What are your plans going forward? I joke to my kids, it's like the Lifetime Achievement Award. Does that mean, you know, I'm, I'm a my career's over, hopefully not. <laughs> so I think plans going forward are just to continue to evolve Urban Decay, keep it relevant. And I have lots of personal creative projects, like I'm working on a book. So there's a lot of fun things happening in my world. And I hope to continue being as creative as I can be. That's good to hear. I have no doubt. And I look forward to the book. Sounds like another podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have to get together for another podcast. Absolutely right. Do you have any advice to give people, particularly women, but not just women, in following their passions to create a new business or whatever form that creativity might find itself? I do. This is from personal experience. And I think many people are passionate, they're creative, and they see an opportunity to start a business. And because you're passionate and creative, you go for it. 
one of the things I didn't do was at the beginning was pay enough attention to the business side of the business, right? I thought if I made great product and had a great brand story that people would just want to buy it. But the fact is you need great selling tools. You need to think about the sales side. You need to think about the operation side. You need to think about the finance side. So for anyone who has this vision and passion to start a business, make sure that you have the business side taken care of, whether that's through a partner who focuses on those areas or tapping into resources that help you focus on those areas. Don't forget about that because your creativity and your passion for this particular area in your life or your outlook, it's going to take over your attention, but the business needs attention too. Sounds like very sound advice. Ground yourself in reality and get a partner that has a good business head or get one yourself. That's exactly right. Thank you, Wendy. This has been terrific. You're inspirational, very creative, very confident, and it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun to talk to you. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Wendy Zomner. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.